So we are in week five of our study in Revelation, looking at the seven churches. I, we had uh, some friends with us for the first time this morning, and I told them, we're in Revelation, and the eyes got big, right? Like, oh, goodness, uh, don't know if we want to come back. But uh, no, we are in Revelation, and I believe this has been some of the most um, relevant content to our situation that we have studied. Uh, the Bible is speaking directly to us as it's, as Jesus spoke directly to these people. So what have we been in thus far? We started with Ephesus. Ephesus is a church who were doing good things, but they had lost their first love. A church who was, we use the example of like an old married couple, or maybe even after you've been dating for a while, and you just get so in the routine that you've kind of lost the spark. And the church was told, repent and return to the things you did at first, to the love you had at first. And then we flipped over to Smyrna, a church enduring persecution, and we ended actually that Sunday talking about Polycarp, their pastor, who was then killed, and they tried to set him on fire, if you remember this very graphic, detailed explanation. They tried to set him on fire, it didn't work, so they sent somebody in to stab him to death, and then the blood extinguished the flames... They're a church that knows persecution, knows the cost of following Jesus, yet the one that they can blame, the one who holds it all in his hands, allowing this, and the one they can blame, they choose to worship. And then we looked at Pergamum, a church indistinguishable from the culture, a church so caught up that Jesus is their Savior, but culture is their Lord and it is what they bow down to. And we looked specifically at how sexual immorality had rocked that church and how they were living lives completely devoted to their own pleasure. And Jesus said, this must not be so. And then last week, we looked at Sardis, a pharisaical church, a church that has the reputation of being alive and yet they are dead. A church that, as we sat in it, I believe, Loved doing things for Jesus, but didn't really love Jesus. And we ask the question, are we more concerned with our reputation or with a relationship? Pharisees are usually well-liked, exalted, honored, thought highly of, whereas the followers maybe are overlooked. And we ask the question, which one do I want to be? This morning we flipped to Philadelphia. Ephesians, I mean, not Ephesians, Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 7. Philadelphia is a small congregation lacking much power. They don't have very much presence or prestige in the world. There's no real notable influence. We don't really hear of Philadelphia in other parts of the Bible. Philadelphia is just, could kind of be overshadowed if we're not careful. And I really believe that this church really speaks this morning to those of you who feel like the outsider or those that feel like they're left out. For those of you that feels like you've been picked over or maybe never picked at all. For those who wonder, what real value do I bring to the table? I don't sing. I don't speak. I don't, I'm really busy. I don't really know what good I am doing. And Nothing negative is said, but things aren't going great in Philadelphia, not because of gross misconduct on their end, but because it doesn't seem like any good results are coming out of them. Only negative results. 
So, so what do we do with this church? Here is what the word of the Lord says to them. Starting in verse 7, To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those who of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but they are liars, they lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you because you have kept my word about patient endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from the God of he- from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay, there was a lot going on there. Kind of a long passage, and there's some apocalyptic language and all of this. But, but Jesus starts off in verse 2 verses to this church with keys and doors and opening and shut. And here's a crucial fact you must know about Philadelphia. From all that we can understand, they are a church that has been excommunicated from the temple of God in their town. What does that mean? Because of what they believe, and they share a belief in the same God as the Jews of the synagogue and the Christians who follow Jesus, they share a same God, but now they have been excommunicated, unable to come in and to practice worship in the place of worship. They have been locked out, banished, all because how they view Jesus matters. And really, that's the crux of our whole faith. It's how do you view Jesus? You're a Christian because you view Jesus as your Savior, as your Lord, as the Messiah, as your friend, only because we understand Jesus in that way. If we do not understand Jesus in that way, we cannot be Christians. And here's where the divide happened. They were still waiting and hoping, the Jews, for a Messiah for the one that was going to come and make them right, to establish them in power. And yet the Christians are saying, He is here. He has come. He has been in our midst. We are worshiping Him. And they say, no, 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 get away. You're blaspheming. So to these people locked out, Jesus says, I hold the key. I open the door. And when I open it, no one shuts it. When I shut it, no one opens it. I have the power. See, keys grant power, don't they? When you got your key to get into your dorm, you now had a new power and a new freedom. I remember when I was in college, I got a key to our church. That meant I could go to the church whenever I wanted, and I went way more than I probably should have. That meant I could open any door. There's power in that. That meant we could play indoor soccer any night we wanted to until we started messing up the drop ceiling in the gym, and then they said, we need to stop that immediately. (laughs) Keys grant power. We have a student here that has a key to the church. Does anybody know who that is? Oh, does Hunter have one too? And, way to go. And Alejandro Luis Jr., right? He has a key to the church. He's trying to keep it quiet, but he loves the fact that he has a key to the church. 
And he like whips that thing out. What, you want to get in? Like, I got a key. Like, Hondro wants you to know he has a key. I don't know if Hunter does the same. I just know Hondro's done it. He had an office as well, so he's pretty powerful. All right? Uh, but when you have a key, you have power. Jesus is saying, I'm the one that holds the key. I- I've got the key. I am, he goes on in the first opening lines, I am the holy one, a term reserved from God. He says, yeah, that's me. I'm the true one, the trustworthy, the believable one. Yeah, that's me. And I have the key, I have the power of, the, of David. What does that mean? The Messiah was promised to come through the lineage of David. 2 Samuel chapter 5 tells us that David will have a son that reigns forever. And Jesus is saying, yeah, yeah, I'm him. The one you're waiting on, that's me. The one you've been hoping for? Yeah, that was me. I have these keys. I have the power. I am in control. And he, then he says, I am the one who opens and closes. Jesus will say in his ministry on the earth, he will say, I am the way, the truth, and the life, right? In John's gospel. No one comes to the Father except through me. He'll also say, I am the gate or the door for the sheep. I'm the one that determines access and provides security for you. I am the one who will go before you and make a way for you. Only through me is there a way. Now, in a sense, you can think of Jesus as the bouncer of heaven, right? Like he is keeping out and keeping in. And this may frustrate your granddad because he probably has some St. Peter's jokes, right? Like at the gates of heaven, like, you know, have you, do y'all not know those? Yeah. Okay. They're pretty bad. Well, this may, he might have wrong theology. So when he starts that at Thanksgiving, just bring up Philadelphia and just be like, well, Jesus is the one with the key, not Peter. But, you know, like we can go through all that. Uh, I have the key. I open the door. I'm the one who says either, well done, my good and faithful servant, or away from me, for I never knew you. Jesus comes to a people who are banished from the earthly house of God and says, I've opened the door to the eternal house for you. I've made a way. Yeah, you're feeling it. Yeah, you've been shut out, but I've opened it up. See, Jesus comes to us and comforts us where we are. He comforts us in the midst of our pains and our sufferings. He knows our situation. That's why he comes to a people locked out by the people of God. He says, I've opened it up because I'm the Son of God. No one can shut. No one can open. And then he reminds them, yes, those people you fear, those people that seem powerful, those people that are wielding this power over you and saying that they are the true believers of God, well, actually, they're a synagogue of Satan. He said that in Smyrna a couple of, um, verses back. He said, yeah, all of these people that pretend to be Jews and they pretend to be following me, they're missing it. They don't get it. I fear how many synagogues of Satan we have in America as well. Believing we have it all right and yet missing it completely. So he goes on and in verse 9, he makes a promise to them. You, soon you'll be shown right. End of verse 9 it says, Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Okay, a little bit of Israel history here. 
Israel was promised that the Gentiles, meaning the non-people of God, the pagans, the others, the outsiders, that they would, at the end of the ages, come to the mountain of Zion and Isaiah, both in chapter 2 and I think in 22 or maybe 49. We'll figure it out one day. Uh, ask Calvin or uh, Cameron. I'm sure they'll be able to figure it, find it and look it up for you. When this day happens, the Gentiles, all the non-believers will come and bow down to the people of God. And then an irony of all ironies, Jesus says to the church of Philadelphia, those who think they have it all together, they are going to be the ones who are coming and bowing down before you. They are going to be the ones who are laying down the crowns to you because you know what is right. It reminds me of the words of James saying the rich will be brought down and the poor will be elevated. It reminds me of the words of Jesus where he says the exalted will be humbled and the humbled will be exalted. See, in the kingdom of God that Jesus is establishing, it changes all of our worldly expectations. We don't try to be first, but the last are made first, right? Jesus switches and contorts and changes everything that we think of. The Messiah that is supposed to push back Rome actually comes and is killed by the people of Rome. Because he is defeating something bigger than a nationalistic power. He's defeating Satan. Everything gets turned upside down. He's saying, hold on. There will be a day where you will be made right. And then this line gets me. The final few words of verse 9, he says, And they will know that I have loved you. See, we throw around that word love, right? We just love that cute dog. I mean, look at the bandana, right? We just love Chipotle, like, right, Ethan? We just love Chipotle. We we love our Aggies in Crimson Tide, right? Good or bad? We love all sorts of things. We love, love, love. But we don't need to be so cavalier with that word always. And if you just started dating someone, really listen to this part, okay? Like, don't be so cavalier with that word, all right? Reserve it for the real meaning of it. I remember the first time I told Carlin I loved her. So we've been dating for over six months at the time, and things started off kind of rocky because I had to convince her to go on a date with me. Um, but eventually I'm pretty persuasive um, and broke her down, and she just said, okay, all right? Um we go on a date. Things are going well. We wrote letters to each other all summer because she worked at a camp. It's really hard to end a letter if you don't say I love you yet. And so it's like, farewell or miss you or greetings or, you know, it's just awkward, all right? Um, but then I remember we got back that summer, and I remember looking at her and saying, Carlin, I love you. And then what did you say? Thank you. Talk about a mood killer, all right? <laughs> the rest of that day doesn't go real well. Um, you know, you're like, well, that was fun. Uh, I'm going to see you later and go hang out with my roommates now. Uh, and, yeah, be demoralized and dejected. Uh, yeah, didn't read that right. No, but in guarding her heart and protecting her, she doesn't need to give herself to that before as me kind of leading the way steps into that. And so she, she did it right-ish, all right? Well... Yeah, well, yeah. Um, and then, I'll pray a week later. She says, Jordan, i got to tell you something. 
And so in a really awkward way, she looks me in the eye and says, Jordan, I love you. And even though it was awkward, it was meaningful, right? To hear, I love you. I choose you. I I accept you. Jesus, to a people hurting, suffering, experiencing all of these negative things, left out, kicked out. He says, and then everyone will know that I have loved you. Verses 8 starts with, I know you. Verse 9 ends with, I love you. Kind of been a theme for us over the course of this last month and a half. In Jesus, we can be known and loved. Were they perfect? No. Did they have history? Sure. Were, were they exactly the model Christians? No. But they were known and they were loved. You can be known and loved. No matter your history, no matter what you've been through, no matter the choices you've made, no matter even what you did last night, you can be known and loved. But, but if I was in Philadelphia at that point, I would look past the ways that Jesus has given mercy and grace to me, and I would have said, how can you both know me and love me if you're allowing this to happen to me? How can you know how bad I am suffering how hard life is, how much I am struggling, how depressed and how anxious I am. How can you know how miserable and how painful and how difficult it is? And if you say that you love me, wouldn't you do something about it? If you both know me and love me, then why am I still experiencing this? Why don't you fix it? Why don't you change it? Why don't you help? So Jesus, if the, the sinful and self-centered side of me would say, You either love me and don't know all that's going on in my life. Or you know me and you're allowing it. You don't love me. My guess is you've sat in that place before. Why are you allowing this to happen to me? Why are you causing this to happen to me? Why, and you guys can go, it's 10.35. Why do I have to continue to experience this If you love me. But we must understand that our situations do not determine God's love and God's knowledge. We must not lose our faith or our hope or our trust in God just because our situations don't go as we want them to. See, we were promised to have to go through stuff like this. James 1, consider it pure joy when you experience trials of various kinds because there's a point. We're not just masochists who like to be having difficult things happen to us. No, there's a point in this, and that is to produce steadfastness and completeness. God is bringing us through for our good even when we cannot see it. So he's saying, yeah, you. I know you're left out. I know you feel insignificant. I know you have very, very little power. I know that it seems hopeless. I know that things are going awfully. But I know you, and I love you. And I'm a good father. He goes, two more promises, and we're going to kind of end on this stuff. Now, and I'm going to be honest with you. They're kind of draped in apocalyptic language. Don't get overwhelmed, all right? We're going to try to just see through that for a second, but we're going to read some of it, all right? The first, in verse 10, 
He promises deliverance. He says in verse 10, and Hunter can throw it up on the screen as well, he says, because you've kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour that is coming on the whole world to those who dwell on the earth. Oh, that's okay. Clear all first. Thank you, bud. There, there's a day, he's saying, I will deliver you. See, what's happening, and you can interpret that twice, I mean two different ways. One, I'll deliver you from or I'll deliver you through. We want from, okay, just to clarify. We want to be delivered from. We're driving down the road. Major collision is on our path. We see it, and we want God to create a shortcut like we're on Mario Kart that we can just avoid it and keep going, right? We just want him to, okay, that was easy. All right, now we're good. But really, in the translation there, as they get back into the Greek, while the translation in English comes off like he'll take us away from it. And there is a final judgment he's talking about. But there's also a promise that he'll deliver us through. Even though we experience it, we can hope. There's going to be another side. We will make it through. Yes, we're going to suffer and endure, but that is not final. John 17, and he'll throw this on the screen as well. He says this, I, verse 14 and 15, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Jesus says, yeah, the world's going to hate Christians. They hated me. They killed me. Don't be surprised by this. But here's his prayer, verse 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. We don't get an easy, soft, perfect life. But we have hope in the storm. No matter what comes our way, there is someone with us, walking alongside us, delivering us. See, testing actually reveals character, doesn't it? It shows what we are made of. And it actually, it'd be easy to follow Jesus if that just meant blessing and health and wealth. But in the storm, we find out, do we believe? Do we trust? Then let's get to these second promises. It says, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from God out of heaven and my own name. Lots going on there. Pillar. Here's what we need to know. I'll make them a pillar. I will make them stand. Think about um, like Greek and Roman um, archaeology sites. What's still standing? The columns, the pillars. While everything else has fallen, while everything else has crashed, while everything else has deteriorated, we still have those posts, those pillars, standing strong. And he says, I'm going to do some writing. The name of my God, the name of the city of God, and Christ's new name. Name of God. Later in Revelation, it's going to be promised the name of God is going to be written on forehead. Pretty sure that's apocalyptic. All right. Don't know if that's going to be a literal thing, so, you know, or just maybe pack some makeup, I guess, if that bothers you. No, I probably don't want to hide that, actually. Uh, the, the name of God written on, what does that mean? You're chosen. You're his. The name of the new city. Wow, that's cool. I didn't know. Are we all going to be in one city? Okay, we're not going to get all into that. Here's what we do know. The people of Philadelphia, those who follow and those with patient endurance and those who believe in Jesus and give him their life, they are citizens of this new city whose king is God. So he's saying, you're going to be a people of God in the city of God, and then I'm going to give you my new name. 
So I don't think we're going to have to rewrite all of our praise songs. I think he can maybe still go by Jesus. The full, the new name of Jesus here is my full character is going to be revealed. Who I am. What I have done. How I love you. That's what's going to be revealed. I'm going to give you the name of God, city of God, and my new name so you can know and experience all of who I am. Don't get caught up and all that weird language and all that that's hard to understand. Here's what we need to know. Even in the trials that come, we have a promise that He's with us. And we have a promise of heavenly citizenship and a relationship with the triune God. So here's what we end with this morning. Philadelphia is a church overlooked and forgotten. Philadelphia is a people that were unwanted and kicked out. Philadelphia doesn't have much power or prestige. Philadelphia feels like they're losing. They are a church, though, that has taken radical steps to follow Jesus, and it's cost them a whole heck of a lot. Not only is their religious side messed up, socially they are ostracized, economically they are put at disadvantage, physically they are beaten. Every facet in the Maslow hierarchy is struggling right now because they choose to follow Jesus. And he says, I know you. I see you. I love you. I desire to be with you. I'm preparing a place for you. I will exalt you. Some of you resonate with Philadelphia. You feel forgotten and left out. You feel overlooked, lacking much power or ability. You look at others and go, man, if I was just like them. You feel like you've been kicked out of things. Rejected. Pushed away. Denied access. You feel like you have always been on the outside looking in. And Jesus says, I know you. I see you. I love you. I desire you. I'm preparing a place for you. Keep holding on. Keep fighting the good fight. Keep enduring. Don't let your circumstances define your relationship with me. Hold out. I've said over and over to many of you this semester, lean into your story. Some of you go, but, but you just don't know how bad it's been. But I believe that God is in control. He is the one that holds the key and He opens the doors and He makes ways. And guess what? He will work in, through, and around you. So what do I read about Philadelphia? What do I take from it? They're an encouragement. In the storm and trials, in the waiting and in the wondering, in the hoping and in the doubting, Philadelphia holds on. They are an example of steadfast perseverance. And they are known and they are loved. So whatever you're experiencing, whatever you're going through, whatever difficulty, whatever trial, whatever thing that you're persevering in the midst of. Here's what I want you to know. God is not surprised. And God still loves you. What you are experiencing is making up the mosaic of your life. That's going to be a beautiful picture and that God is creating for your good and for His glory. Will you believe that is the real question.